Good evening. Great to see you all. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our preaching team. And, uh, you know, I love country music. I realize not everybody loves it, but uh, what I love about it, I think in part, is there's so many country songs about nostalgia and about the good old days and about how things were better back when. And, and there's, I, I'm a sucker for nostalgia. I mean, especially this time of year as we get into fall, just, just things kind of make me nostalgic. And, and it's just interesting the different things that can trigger a nostalgic uh, thought and, and response. Like if I, sometimes it's music. Like if I just hear uh, Always Be My Baby by uh, Mariah Carey, I am transported back to spring break in high school. And it's like, oh man, those were the good old days. That was, that was incredible. Sometimes it's a song. Uh, sometimes it's a smell. Uh, I was a baseball player and I loved pine tar. And uh, pine tar is that stuff that the baseball players use to like stick on their bat to just get a good grip and stuff. Well, I got a couple years ago for Christmas, I got this pine tar smelling soap. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. So sometimes it's that. I'm from Denver. There's a place, right? Places trigger uh, the good old days moments. There's a place in Denver called uh, Casa Bonita. And uh, anyone who's lived in uh, Denver knows about Casa Bonita. Maybe you've, if you've ever traveled in, you might have even gone there. It's like this big, crazy indoor restaurant where this waterfall and cliff divers and it caves and it's this whole thing. And, uh, you know, I, I just take there, go, go there with my kids sometimes when we go visit. And it's like, man, this just place just takes you back. So uh, maybe it's food. Like biscuits and gravy for me is the thing. I remember when I found out about biscuits and gravy, I was with my grandma in Prescott. Uh, I was probably seven years old and she said, yeah, I'm going to make biscuits and gravy. And I'd only ever had brown gravy. I didn't know there was such thing as like, you know, white sausage gravy. And so I'm like, grandma, that's disgusting biscuits and gravy. And she's like, no, it's going to be really good. And so I, I can't have biscuits and gravy and not think of the good old days with my grandma. The good old days, nostalgia, it's powerful. It, it, it bonds and connects you together, but it also just, it feels like some stability in the midst of a chaotic world. And a lot of times we're trying to go back to the good old days, right? We have to try to remind ourselves, actually, man, I'm in the good old days. Like I think about with my kids, like my kids right now, whatever is now will be their good old days. So I got, I got to pay attention to that. Uh, we do the same thing in the church though, too. We imagine the good old days of when the church was good, right? When the church was what it was supposed to be. If you've had a great church experience at some point in your past, you, you look back, you go, oh man, you compare everything to that because those were the good old days. We do this with the early church. This is what people will do sometimes. They go, man, I just, I wish we could go back to the early church, right? Because there's this sense that the early church was pure and sweet and great. And every time someone says, man, I wish we could just go back to the early church, I always want to go, which one? Because like most of the New Testament is letters to churches that were pretty jacked up, right? Like there's some stuff going on in Corinth that has never happened in my ministry here. I mean, it's pretty jacked up, right? And, and actually what we have in tonight's passage, tonight we're looking at Revelation 2 and 3, is it's a series of seven letters to seven early churches. And what we're going to find actually is that the things that they needed are the same things we need now. The things we need now are the same things they needed. That actually the truths that are the truths for the church don't really change. And yeah, some churches maybe have a good experience or a bad experience, but like what, what we need is what we need. 
And that's what we're going to hear tonight is what do we need to hear from the Lord Jesus. So this is week two of our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, thanks for coming back. Uh, a couple things to just let you know about as it relates to this series. First is if you have questions about Revelation, about end times, uh, things that you hope will come up and we can answer at some point during this, we've got a QR code for you. would encourage you to scan that. Uh, maybe just keep that browser open on your phone in case questions pop up. Uh, we would love for you to be able to send those. Uh, some of them we might, Seth and I might do a podcast episode they might make their way into, you know, as we form our sermons, we, there might just be spots where we go, hey, we're going to address this or whatever. Uh, we also did an episode on the King and Culture podcast, Seth and I did, that we just released on the book of Revelation and on the future of Israel. We talk about all the end times terms and a lot of different stuff. It still is honestly just scratching the surface, but it's a, over an hour long conversation. And if you're like just going, man, I, I'm trying to catch up on this or I want to understand where they're coming from, this is a good resource for you. So look at the King and Culture podcast. Uh, but we talked last week about what Revelation's trying to do. And I just want to remind us of some things that we're going to probably say over and over and over throughout this series. Here's the first reminder is that Revelation is less about predicting and more about preparing. It's less about predicting the specifics of the future, though there are specifics predicted about the future. It's less about that. It's more about preparing the church to be faithful now. Here's something that you're just going to, again, you're going to hear me say this a lot, is listen, when it comes to the return of Christ, we are not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. Like, I don't know how it's planning out. I don't know exactly how it's going to go. Uh, it's, that's not really what matters. That's not the big question. See, we get obsessed with the question of when is the Son of Man going to come back? When is Jesus going to come back? How is it going to happen? But that is not the question Jesus was interested in. Listen to the question Jesus asked. In Luke 18, verse 8, here's what he said. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We're obsessed with when and how is he going to come. Jesus is obsessed with, are you going to be faithful? And that's what this book is written to do, to help us prepare to be faithful. We said this last week, Revelation isn't a warning about persecution, because persecution is certainly coming. But rather, it's a warning about the temptation to compromise in order to avoid persecution. Persecution is just part of the game. If you're going to follow Jesus, they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. That's part of it. And Revelation is trying to prepare us to not cave in to the pressure to avoid persecution. Here's a third reminder is that Revelation is not one kind of literature, but three. It's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and it's a letter. Apocalyptic is big, bold, uh, powerful, evocative language to try to seize your attention uh, related to things about the future and, and the reality of the future, like the future's perspective on now and heaven's perspective on earth. That's what apocalyptic literature is doing. Prophecy, there's a predictive element to it a little bit, but part of it is trying to call the church to repent and to be faithful. Say, live in line with what you know about who God is. So there's prophecy. And it's also a letter. This was written to people. And we're going to really experience that tonight as we look at these seven uh, letters to these seven churches. And so finally, here's the last uh, point of uh, reminder. Is that Revelation was not written to us, but it is written for us. Think about it this way. These are letters that in a sense we've been cc'd on. Right, like these aren't letters to us. This is to the church in Ephesus. It's the church of Sardis, the church in Pergamum, the church in wherever. Uh, and it's not really to us, but we got copied on it, right? There's sometimes you use that CC function. You're like going, this isn't to, to this other person, but I want to make sure they see it. Thankfully, the whole Bible really is God saying, hey, you're CC'd on this. This wasn't written to you, but it is written for you. 
And uh, one of the ways that we know that this in particular is written for us is that there's seven of these letters. Now, this is something that'll come up throughout the series is that seven in the book of Revelation is this number that tends to represent fullness or completion. So you see the, the number seven show up a bunch of different places. It shows up there's seven blessings, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues, seven bowls. Seven times that it's, God's called the Lord God Almighty. Uh, seven lampstands, which we're told in Revelation 1.20, represent these seven churches. And so in a sense, it's letters to these seven churches, but because it's seven and it's complete, it's, it's like a letter for all churches forever, everywhere. And that's also why in each of the seven letters, it says this, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're meant to listen in. We're meant to pay attention. This isn't written to us, but it's written for us. All right, so here's where we're going to go tonight is I want to just give you a sense of the, the flow of each of these letters so that you can actually go back and study uh, each of them on your own. And, and by the way, this would be an incredible seven-week series. Maybe we'll do that someday. But tonight, we're just going to cover it all in one. But I'm going to give you a little bit of some handlebars of what's going on in each of these letters. And then I want to ask three questions. What pumps Jesus up? What gets under Jesus' skin? And what does Jesus want to see from his church? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Will you pray with me? So Father, uh, you say in your word here, in all seven of these letters to these seven churches, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we don't need to ask you to speak. You've already spoken. But we do ask for the ability to hear. Help us hear your heart tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's just an overview of these particular churches. So there's seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. Um, we have a map of uh, where these churches would be. Uh, it was called Asia Minor because that's the small part of Asia, but you see those uh, on the western part of Turkey. I've been to all those places. They're all real places. I think that's important to say. Sometimes you read the Bible, you think it's almost mythological, like to the church in Metropolis, uh, to, the, to the church in you know, Radiator Springs, to the, church at, to the church in Mordor. Like these are real places. These are real cities. These are written to real people. Uh, by the way, I also think it's just stunning. These would have been very small churches. Like the, there would not, none of these churches were as big as this gathering right now. Probably none of them were as big as any one section. They would have met in homes. They would have been more like a large, small group. Right? So we think about this like to the church in America, to the church in Phoenix. No, no, no. This would have been like, to the Smith RC, to the, to the Jones small group, right? And I, I, I like even like the specific, like I just imagine as the people are hearing this, they're like going, oh wow, they really, I, when Jesus says, I, I see your faith, I see your service, they're probably like, Linda, that's you. He shouted you out, Jesus is yeah. And then he's like, and some of you guys are getting quirky. And it's like, Ron, you know, like. <laughs> You know, they're like, like, this is what it is. Like, this, Jesus knows his people. So it's these letters, right, which means they're all different. They, but they follow a similar relative pattern. So uh, they're addressed to the angel of the church and wherever. 
Uh, then there's a description of Jesus. That description of Jesus is borrowed from uh, Revelation chapter one and you get this picture that Jesus is worth listening to. Here's the description when you put them all together. Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that is the churches. Jesus is the one who died and came to life. He has the sharp two-edged sword of his word. He has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He's the holy and true one, the faithful and true witness. In other words, listen up. Pay attention. This is the guy you should listen to. Love how Beth Moore says it. She says, we cannot tame the Lion of Judah. There's a mystery, a wonder, and yes, even a wildness about God that we can't take from him. So there's this description of Jesus. And then Jesus says, hey, here's what I know about you. And he describes in most cases some really good stuff. Here's what I see. Here's what's really encouraging. And then here's some stuff I got a problem with. And uh, you got to address this. And here's how I want you to address, on it, address it. And, and then in each case, there is a call to conquer. And we'll talk about what that means at the end. And a promise of reward for those who do conquer. Now, you can go online. You can go find charts of, you know, just Google seven churches of Revelation charts. And you can see uh, this whole breakdown. By the way, that's probably the only part of Revelation you should Google about. Uh, I, think you'll be, but I think you're safe there uh, if you do it. So... So in, in almost all of these cases, all except the last of the seven, Laodicea, in all of the first six, Jesus is pumped up. So let's ask that question first. What pumps Jesus up? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, I think a lot of times we just think of Jesus as this two-dimensional, robotic, please believe in me for eternal life. Like you, you imagine you just put a coin in him and like get it, you know, pull the string and he'd like say a Jesus thing, you know, but Jesus is a person and Jesus is electric and Jesus is powerful and Jesus is incredible. And so I just imagine there's a lot here that Jesus is, you, you see through it. He's, he's pumped about, he's excited about, he's grateful for. And I think this confronts those of us who are legalists or have legalistic tendencies. It confronts those of us who have strong inner critics, who if we said, hey, Jesus has something to tell you, you'd go, uh oh, what is it? Well, maybe it's that he actually has some encouragement for you. Right? I think about like right now I'm helping out uh, Coach Hank's six-year-old uh, team. And, you know, I'm not the head coach, but I'm helping out in practice. And, and every now and then the kids get it. I mean, most of the time, clueless, not, not, nothing going on, right? Right? Yeah, these guys are on our team. And it's like, and, and we played against you guys the other night. You guys ate our lunch. Way to go. Uh, you know, but the other day in practice, like I'm telling, I'm telling this kid, Jack, he's like the, you know, he's up in the front and it's like, hey man, here's the deal. If they hand off the ball, go get the flags and pull it. Okay. And uh, if they pretend to hand off the ball, then backpedal as fast as you can. And the next play, he did it. He did it. I'm like, dude, Jack, where'd he go, man? And it's like, do you ever think Jesus might be like that? He is, he's pumped up. So I wanna give you a list of some stuff that pumps Jesus up. Again, I don't have time to go through every little piece of it, but we'll have the references if you wanna keep track of this. Here's some stuff that pumps Jesus up about these churches. Jesus is pumped up by their good works, chapter two, verse two. They're faithful, they're obedient, they're serving the Lord. We're not saved by our good works, but boy, when we're saved, we do good works. Jesus is pumped by their patient endurance and their bearing up under trouble. It's difficult, there's persecution, there's opposition. Jesus is glad they're hanging in there. Jesus is pumped about their intolerance of evil and their intolerance of false teaching. By the way, God cares about doctrine and he cares that we believe what's true and that we reject what's false. He's glad when they hold firm to that. He's pumped up 
in chapter 2, verse 9 to the church in Smyrna because they're facing tribulation and they're dealing with poverty and they're dealing with slander and it seems like everything is coming against them and yet they're remaining faithful. That encourages Jesus. He's pumped about it. In chapter 2, verse 13 to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. You live in a city that's almost like the, well, what does he say? The throne of Satan. And yet you're holding fast to my name. Way to go. Way to go. Man, you're in a godless, godless, wicked place and you're holding on to me. Man, I'm so proud of you. Jesus says in chapter two, verse 19, that he's pumped about their good works and their love and their faith and their service. There's these times, aren't there? Where you just wonder like, man, I feel like I'm trying to serve the Lord. Does he notice? Yes. Yes. Hebrews six says, God will not forget the works of service you've done in his name. Or chapter three, verse four, he encourages them. He says, hey, listen, you're, you're a small remnant. You're a faithful remnant. Most of these people, he, he actually says, have soiled their pants. They have made a mess in the bed, but you've been faithful. Chapter three, verse eight, he tells them, hey, you, you don't have any power. I know your works before you. I've set an open door, which no one can shut. You have but little power. And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Listen, you don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have a lot of influence. You don't have to have a lot of power to be faithful. Jesus says, man, I'm so proud of you. In chapter three, verse 10, I'm so proud of you, Jesus said. I'm pumped up that you keep his word. I just want to tell you tonight, Jesus loves it when you obey him, when you prioritize him, when you hold on to him. He notices it and he sees you. And you might go, ah, is it worth it? Yes. Does he notice? Yes. Is there reward coming for it? Yes. He's pumped when he sees his church do what his church is supposed to do. But there's some things he's not crazy about. And that leads us to the second question. Is what gets under Jesus' skin? What gets under Jesus' skin, right? If the, if the first question about what Jesus gets pumped up, if that confronts the legalistic tendency in us to only see the bad stuff, well, this actually confronts those of us, and I'd put myself in this boat, who would call ourselves gospel-centered. Like, I, I'm gospel-centered, which means I believe that the gospel is the good news. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. I believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that because of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his promise to return, that anyone who puts their hope in him is as certain of heaven as the people that are already there. I believe that because of that, we're accepted on the basis of what he does, not on the basis of what we do, and God is not going to love us any more or any less on the basis of our works. Now, for those of us in that world, it's easy to downplay the importance of obedience. Because we can go, well, yeah, well, you know what, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, God loves me no matter what. He does, but that doesn't mean he loves everything we're doing. And Jesus says, I got some, I got some stuff we've got to talk about. Those of you who are parents and grandparents, you get this. You're crazy about your kids. Like they, most, most of us, it's like, they're not trying, they don't have to earn my favor. I love them. But man, I'd like to shape them up in a couple areas. Jesus is the same way. Now, what's interesting is of the seven churches, uh, two of them, he has no critique of them at all. Isn't that interesting? Two of them, he's like, hey, you're doing awesome. Hang in there, keep going. But five, there's some critique. And so what I've tried to do is synthesize the critique to those five churches. And I think we can synthesize it in three particular ways. The first way is this, is what gets under Jesus' skin is drifting hearts. 
drifting hearts. We see this in the church to Ephesus and the church in, uh, in Sardis. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2, of verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Right, right before this, he said, I know you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my namesake. You haven't grown weary. But here's the problem. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You used to be close to me. You used to be connected to me. You used to be on fire for me. And you're not anymore. And not only that, but you're not, uh, you haven't just abandoned love for me. You've abandoned love for other people. Now, here's what's interesting with the church of Ephesus. They're the ones that had the best doctrine, the best ability to refute error, which tells you this. You can have a, a right head and a wrong heart. You can have all the theology correct in a heart that is drifting from the Lord, drifting from people. We think that spiritual maturity is about what we know. It's about how we love. If the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and to love neighbors ourselves, well then you're only as mature as your love. And Jesus says, I, I see you walking away. I see you abandoning the love that you had at first. He has a similar kind of idea to the church in Sardis. This is in chapter three. Uh, now, beginning in verse one, he says this. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. It's interesting, in both these cases where their hearts are drifting, the answer is to remember and then to repent. Look at verse five of chapter two. He says to the Ephesians, they've, they're abandoning their love. Re remember where you've fallen and repent. To the church in Sardis, remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. In other words, you had this great thing with God and you let it get cold. You let it flame out. And, and that's a problem. Jesus is going, hey, I want to be close to you. I want to be connected to you. I, I, want, I, I want it to be like it was in the good old days. Let's go back there. Right? Like we go like, man, I feel the same way. Like my, my passion for the Lord is just not what it was. Well, whose who's problem is that? It, Jesus didn't stop making himself available to us, but we start drifting. So drifting hearts, that gets under Jesus' skin. He goes, hey, come on back. Come on back. Let, let's turn up the heat on that again. All right, here's the second thing that gets under Jesus' skin is mixing faith and idolatry. Now, I gotta spend a little more time on here because it involves some cultural background that we gotta understand here. Uh, but what bothers Jesus in a few of these churches is that it's not that they've walked away totally from him, it's that they've tried to combine faith in him with other stuff. And so th this, is the, this is the background that's helpful to know. In each of these cities, there had developed um, these different worship places for what was known as the imperial cult. So if you think about uh, first century um, Asia Minor, there would have been lots of deities, lots of gods, lots of goddesses, lots of worship. The, the idea that there was like one God, no one really believed that. Uh, that really came out of Judaism and Christianity. Um, but that, that, there were lots of gods. You, you worshiped into lots of different things. You might have local gods that got a little more emphasis, whatever. Well, one of the things the Roman Empire tried to do to try to keep people more on board as the, as the empire got, you know, kind of increasingly sprawled is they started to worship the emperors. 
the imperial cult, imperial worship, emperor worship. Now, most of the time they would worship uh, emperors that had died. Sometimes they would worship emperors that were still alive. And all seven of these cities where there's a church that the letter's being written to had spots of worship for this imperial cult. And so there was this temptation to compromise. Uh, all, all of these temples, uh, right, you would be encouraged through that to give, they would actually say, you know, you need to say that Caesar is Lord. That's why when the early Christians said, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, that wasn't just a theological statement, that was a political statement. Jesus is Lord. Caesar wanted to be called the son of God. You had to go and to give an offering and praise Caesar for the peace and prosperity he brought to the world. And, and, and here's what made it tough. In a lot of these cities, your ability to participate economically depended on your willingness to go along with this. And so that's a lot of pressure, right? Because if you're a Christian, you're going, there is one God, there is one Lord, his name is Jesus. He's my Lord, he's who I live for. And now, but in order to have this business, what do I do? And so some folks came along and they said, hey, you need to compromise. They were called the Nicolaitans. So here's what it says. Uh, by the way, the, the Greek word for Nicolaitans sounds a lot like the Hebrew. It sounds the same as the word for Balaam in Hebrew. Here's what it says in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have some things against you, he says to Pergamum. You have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, what's the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Here, here's what it was. The, teach, the Nicolaitans, they said, and again, they, they're like Balaam. They said, uh, hey, listen, you can just combine it. You don't have to do one or the other. Like you can do the emperor worship. You can go visit the temple prostitutes. You can do that sort of stuff. It's no big deal. You know, and you can still be a Christian. It's, it's not that bad, right? This is like the prophet Baal in the Old Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, the prophet Baal was asked to prophesy against the people and God by his spirit wouldn't let him do it. And so what Balaam did is he said, you know what? Uh, a direct assault on God and his people doesn't work. So here's what I'll do. I'll convince uh, these women to go corrupt the Israelite men, and they'll lead them after other gods. It's actually compromised from within. And that's how the church is destroyed. It's not from the attacks of outside. It's from the compromise within. It's from the syncretism. It's from the, yes, I can do this and do this. It's the same problem in the church of Thyatira. Uh, there in chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, but this I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, Jezebel's a reference to an Old Testament woman who tempted the king of Israel to worship Baal. Now get this, it wasn't worship God, Yahweh, or Baal, it was worship Yahweh and Baal. So, so when Jesus is saying, hey, here's my problem. Some of you guys are going along with this mixing your faith in me and idolatry, and it doesn't work. You go, well, we would never do that, really. I think we might, might at least be a temptation. Like, I know people who are like, you know what, there's nothing more important than my family. What about the Lord? Oh, I meant the Lord and my family. Okay, well, which is it? You know, 
We go, I want to serve the Lord. But what do you actually rely on for your security and for your comfort and for your joy and for your ease is your money. You go, I don't worship my money. Do you rely on it more than you rely on Jesus? We go, I worship Jesus. But I'm going to rearrange what I think Jesus' word says in order to fit my preferences and desires sexually. Syncretism. Well, my ultimate loyalty is to Jesus, but I also have unquestioning loyalty to this political party. Syncretism. Jesus plus, Jesus and. Jesus and a little bit of that. I, I live for Jesus, but what, I really, what really controls me is what do people think of me? It's syncretism. It's compromise. And Jesus says, hey, hey, it's not, it's not me plus. It's not me and. It's just me. Trust me. Will it cost you? Yes. Will some say, hey, you're not going to be able to work in this marketplace if you're going to hold those views? Okay. It's going to be suffering. He's not saying it'll be easy, but he's saying, this is what I'm calling you to. So he says, I don't want your heart to drift. I don't want you to mix faith with idolatry. And then here's the third thing that gets under Jesus' skin is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency, where we, again, we say we love Jesus, but what we actually trust in is ourselves. And this is the problem, especially with the church in Laodicea. If you have your Bible, look at chapter three. The church in Laodicea, uh, he begins to talk to them in verse 14, and then in verse 15, he begins to challenge them. And again, Laodicea is interesting. It's the only church that he doesn't have anything encouraging to say. And th this should like, get our attention. It's the wealthiest. It's the most prosperous. It's the most economically up and to the right. Interesting. So here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I was like, I just, gross. That's what he's saying. Okay, what is he talking about? Now, the way this often gets talked about is that, you know, because we talked earlier about, you know, you've lost your first love and don't you want your passion to be hot and that sort of thing. This gets interpreted to mean that Jesus is talking mostly about their passion and commitment for him. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm in your passion, so get hot. But, but Jesus actually says, I'd be fine if you were cold or hot. Well, you go, wait a minute, so this can't... That can't be what that means. Do you think Jesus would go like, you know what? I don't care. Don't even love me. No. Like, he's not okay with that. What's it talking about? Well, it's talking about, and this is a really cool thing that's using the geography of what's going on in Laodicea. So Laodicea was this city that didn't really have good water. It didn't have a great water source, and it was dependent on water from two cities that were known for their water. There was Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. It had these hot springs that people would go to for medicinal purposes. It provided healing. It provided a kind of respite when you were dealing with infirmity, right? So that was the hot springs. And then it also nearby was Colossae and Colossae had this cold springs, this cold water that was pure and it was great to drink and it was life-giving and it was wonderful. And what happened is Laodicea had to use those famous ancient uh, aqueducts to be able to get water from Heropolis and, and Colossae into Laodicea. And what would happen is by the time the, the hot water would get to Laodicea, it was kind of lukewarm. By the time the cold water would get to Laodicea, it had gotten lukewarm. 
and it would pick up all these deposits from the limestone that it would be flowing through. And so by the time it got to Laodicea, it was nasty. It was tepid. It had minerals. You'd drink it and go, ugh. And, and so Jesus is using that dynamic to go, you know what, guys? I'm kind of feeling about you like you fill out the water. Ugh. You go, man, well, what's the problem? Well, keep reading. Here's the problem. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. <laughs> Laodicea, do you know the three main things they were known for? They were known for their wealth. They were known for the clothing they created. And they were known for this eye balm, this eye salve that would provide healing and, and allow people to see better. So wealth, clothes, eye balm. What does he say? You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, you think you're rich, you're actually poor. You think you've got all these great clothes, you're actually naked. You think you see, you're actually blind. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, church, come to me for what you need, not yourself. See, this is the temptation when you have resources is you trust in your resources. You trust in your strengths. This has kind of been an amazing thing to me. Like I've been thinking, what if God wants me to trust him in the areas where I'm really strong, not just the areas where I'm really weak? Like, because we all have areas where we go like, oh man, I'm weak at that. I lose my temper and I get easily tempted by this and I you know, get distracted by that. Oh God, would you help me? I'm so weak. God, I'm so weak. But you, when was the last time you said, oh God, help me. I'm, I'm so strong at this. I'm so good at this. God, would you help me? Because God, I'm actually so good at it that I might be tempted to do it without you. There's a place in the end of Proverbs that says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if I have poverty, I'll be tempted to steal and that'll dishonor you. And if I have riches, I'll be tempted to forget you. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, your heart's drifting. You're combining Worship of me with worship of other things and you're self-sufficient. And I don't want you to be self-sufficient. I want you to trust in me. So that's what gets under Jesus' skin. Last question is this. What does Jesus want to see? What does Jesus want for us? What does Jesus want for his church? What does Jesus want to start noticing in the church? Right? There's so much good going on, he says, but there's some areas I got concerned. Here's what I want to see. What does Jesus want to see? Well, here's what he wants to see. He wants to see his church conquer. That's what he wants to see. And this word conquer appears in all seven letters over and over. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. It's the Greek word uh, that we get the same word Nike from. It's the word victory. Here's what it means. It means to win in the face of obstacles, to be victorious, to overcome, to prevail. And I think it's especially interesting in that definition, to win in the face of obstacles. Because we would like to win, but have it be a blowout. Right, like I, um, I, I play uh, 
video games on my PlayStation, especially with my son. We only play sports games, really. And this year we got MLB The Show, so the Major League Baseball game. You know, and he's six and he's figuring it out. And so we've got to play on the real easy settings. And so we play on those settings. But then after a while, I was getting pretty good at it. And uh, even when I wouldn't play against him, I'd still have it on like absolute beginner settings. Remember one night Molly goes to bed and I stay up and uh, the next morning she's like, how's your game? And I said, uh, I won 55 to nothing. This is baseball, right? I think I hit like 20 home runs in this video game. She's like, what a fake game. That's amazing. I'm like, it's real to me, babe. She's like, have you thought maybe you should make it a little harder? I don't know, like 55 nothing? Is that even fun? I was like, it is kind of fun, but. And here's the thing, that we want victory, but we want it on the easy setting. And Jesus is going, hey, this, is, this isn't a fake game. This is a real game. And uh, we're going to see throughout this book all the temptation to compromise, all the temptation to let our hearts drift, all the reasons why real pressure and real pain and real persecution and a real enemy is going to attack us and, and make us think, well, maybe I should just sync this up. Maybe I should just like, do the bare minimum of faithfulness. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. No, no, we're gonna, we're gonna put this on the hard setting and you're gonna conquer. That's what we're called to. We're called to be conquerors. Okay, well, how do we conquer? Well, the world has its answers, right? What are the world's answers? Well, you gotta get money, you gotta get power, and you gotta get education, and you gotta get technology, and you gotta you know, make sure you take control of Hollywood and Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., and you gotta you know, shame your opponents and be angry and be vitriolic, and th- that's not the way of Jesus. And that's not the answer he gives here. In, in each case, he says, hey, I want you to conquer, but here's how he says to conquer. It's through these three R's. We've already talked about a few of them. The first one is to remember. That's what he said to Ephesus. That's what he said to Sardis. Remember where you've fallen. Remember what you received and heard. In other words, the way you conquer is by being absolutely transfixed by the glory and goodness of Jesus. Right? That's what it was that won your heart if you're a follower of Christ. At some point, somebody told you, listen, there is a God and he made you and he knows you and he loves you. And even though he knows everything that is good for you, you and I, we walked away from him and we sinned and we rebelled and we've lived for ourselves and we've put ourselves in the throne of our lives. And even though we've done that, God in his mercy and in his grace has come in Jesus Christ and he has died in our place. He's forgiven our sins and he's inviting you to know him. You could actually have the God of the universe on your side, in your world, ready to listen to your prayers any moment. And, and something you went, oh yeah, I want that. And this is, this is why we come to church, gang, to remember. This is why we take communion, to remember, to remember so that we don't drift, so we don't compromise, so we don't end up self-sufficient. We gotta remember. Secondly, we have to repent Repent is just an old-fashioned word that means turn around. You're headed in this direction, turn around. Right, you're headed towards compromise, turn around. You're headed towards drift, turn around. You're headed towards self-sufficiency, turn around. And, and that's the word that's used over and over and over in these letters. Look at what it says in 2 verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. 
So repent of your lovelessness, Ephesus. Uh, Repent of your compromise, Pergamum. Verse 16, therefore, repent of that holding teaching of the Nicolaitans, that compromise. Repent of that. Repent of your self-reliance, Laodiceans. 319, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Listen, you, you will not avoid these dangers unless you're constantly repenting. If you, if, and get this, if you imagine that repentance is only a big deal after you do some big sin, then you know what you're going to end up doing? You're going to slowly drift. Isn't it interesting? The thing that he's like, hey, this is what bothers me. It's not mega sins. It's little, small compromises. So repent. And then finally, rely. Rely, trust, lean in. Go close to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, I counsel you, this is to Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I want to give you true gold, he says. I want to give you white garments so you may clothe yourselves in the shame of your nakedness. I want to give you real, true covering. And I want to give you salve to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see. Come to me for what you need, Jesus says. Be zealous and repent. And then verse 20, here's this famous verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now listen, that verse gets used all the time uh, in evangelistic settings to tell people who, aren't, who are far from God, hey, I'm, I'm knocking the door. Uh, whatever, I'm not going to critique people's use of that. But I want you to see in this context, who's he saying it to? He's saying to a church who thinks they have everything they need and they've got so much that they actually forgot Jesus. Redemption Gateway, how long could we do church without Jesus? How long could you do your spiritual life without Jesus? We don't want to find out. We want to open that door, invite him in, rely on him. Jesus is the one who lived and died for his church. Jesus knows us. He knows when we're at our best. He knows when we're at our worst. And he says in all of it, What you really need and what I really want for you is I want you to connect with me. Let's pray. So God, thank you for these letters. God, we pray that we could have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, the places where we're drifting, would you call us back? The places where we're compromising, would we hold firm? The places where we're self-sufficient, God, would our self-reliance actually begin to fail us so that we could see what we really need is you. God, thank you that you want to be near us. Thank you that you invite us into your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.